This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Better Samaritan Podcast, where my colleague Kent Annan and I invite you to journey alongside with us as we seek to learn to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Jamie Aiton, and I'm excited to have two guests with us today, Drs. Aaron McLaughlin and Dr. Daryl Vintagren, who are here to discuss one of their recent studies that gives some fascinating psychological insights into everything from why people are losing their religion to quiet quitting church from a psychological perspective. Aaron is a postdoctoral researcher at Georgia State University, and Daryl is an associate professor of psychology and director of the Frost Center for Social Science Research at Hope College. So just really excited to have Aaron McLaughlin and Daryl Vintagren. Both are colleagues and friends and collaborators, and just excited to have a chance to connect with them about some of the great research they're doing. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about one of their latest studies titled Losing My Religion. So actually, I realize that's not the title that you had in the peer-reviewed article, but it is what the American Psychological Association chose to use to describe your study. So maybe you guys could just share some background about the study itself and kind of where the idea came from, what led to the study, that sort of thing. All right. Well, I don't exactly remember what year it was. I was a doc student at Georgia State University working with my advisor, Don Davis. And he called me, I think, over the summer to let me know that he and Daryl were interested in working on this project and asking if I would be a part of that, running some different analyses. And so it was exciting just to kind of hear about the topic. And Daryl, I want to invite you to share because I know this was a part of a larger grant study that you had funded. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, Jamie, so Aaron mentioned we were generous enough to get a a three-year grant from the John Templeton Foundation to study people who were leaving religion. And so previously, researchers had just treated all non-religious people as the same. But we thought to ourselves, well, certainly people who are at one time religious are probably likely different from people who have never been religious at all. And so, whereas a lot of research had focused on the religious nuns, so people who indicate none when they're asked what their religious affiliation is, we wanted to focus on the religious duns. So the duns Mm -hmm. are people who were at one time religious and then decided to walk away. And so the collaboration with Aaron and with Donnie really was born out of this deeper desire for us to understand more richly who are the religious duns? When we talk about people who have walked away from their faith, what characterizes them? Why did they leave? And how is their mental health? Well, let's kind of break that down a little bit. You talked some about how do you characterize the religious duns and then you know what makes them walk away and how's the impact on them? So let's start with that first part there about how would you characterize them or describe them? Yeah. So I think the religious duns are a diverse group, just like the religious nuns or just like religious people. So I think there's a remarkable heterogeneity or diversity among people who have walked away. And I think part of that was revealed in our pilot study in this paper where we asked people, we recruited people who had left religion. 
we asked them to write an essay kind of describing why they left. And then we coded these essays for reasons why people left. And really what we see is you kind of break down into four primary reasons for no longer wanting to identify as religious. So the first is people who reported either intellectual reasons or the fact that they just outgrew their religion, right? So these are people who just said, I took some science classes and I realized, you know, these things don't go together or, you know, being religious was fine when I was a child, but it's not for me anymore. And that was about about half the sample. About a fifth of the sample indicated the reason why they left was because of religious trauma. And Mm. so whether that was seeing the hypocrisy in the church or the Catholic abuse scandals or interactions with a religious leader, they really felt that they had experienced some deep-seated religious trauma. That was about a fifth. The next most likely category was because of personal adversity. And so these were folks who had experienced just some type of tragedy or suffering in their life that really pushed them away from religion. So death of a friend, you know, unexplained illness. And then finally, the last were social reasons. And these were people who mentioned friends or family playing kind of a big role in them leaving religion. And so, you know, one of the ones was, well, you know, I married someone, that person I married wasn't religious. So we just kind of stopped going. You know, so it's kind of the the brunch replacement hypothesis, right? So, so speak a little bit more about that, the brunch replacement hypothesis. Oh, yeah, you know, just kind of, it could be for people for whom religion was not particularly central to begin with. And so, you know, they pair off with someone, they partner up with someone for whom religion is not at all important. And partner says, hey, would you rather go to brunch instead of church? And they're like, yeah. Sure, why not? And so, you know, it gradually kind of loses so much centrality or importance. It just no longer is a part of their identity. And so now as you talk about those different reasons for leaving, what were maybe some of the reasons of why people stayed? You know, so I'm really curious too about, you know, whose faith actually survived going through those types of challenges or just life cycles. Yeah, you know, that's fascinating. We only sampled people who had left, but I think that's really an open question because you know, a lot of the work that I do that we've done together kind of looks at people who have left religion. And so it's an area that we call religious de-identification. But I think a close cousin to religious de-identification is what a number of people experience, which is religious deconstruction, right? And so I think religious deconstruction is a pretty popular term right now. And it's not just because Taylor Swift likes to avoid (laughs) smooth-talking hucksters and soul deconstructors. I think it's because... People, as they move through their life, I think it's a normal developmental trajectory pattern for them to question their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so I think deconstruction, in my mind, often occurs for many people, but not everyone leaves, right? So some people deconstruct and the deconstruction process is so significant, the cognitive dissonance is so great that they bail. On the other hand... And so, Daryl, you mentioned uh, cognitive dissonance. So for those that may not be familiar with that term, could you maybe unpack that just a little bit? Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is when either we have two attitudes that are incongruent or incompatible with each other, or our attitude and our behavior is, is incompatible or incongruent. So for example, people might hold the belief that God is loving and just, and then they get struck down with a terminal illness or a significant illness, or they lose a loved one. And then it just doesn't feel, their experience isn't such that God feels loving, just, kind, things like that. And so there's this 
wrestling, this inconsistency inside of people, and it motivates them to resolve the discrepancy. And so sometimes that happens by people just changing their beliefs. And I think some people go through religious deconstruction and they just revise their beliefs, but they stay religious. But I think other people go through religious deconstruction and they just can't solve that, right? They just, the problem of theodicy or the existence of evil or the problem of suffering, however you want to talk about it, I think presents itself too large of a burden for some people to overcome and then they leave. And that was really, I think the hints of cognitive dissonance for us, I think were particularly poignant in the second study, the one that Aaron really took the lead on and did some really great fancy statistical modeling (laughs) for us to get to. And I'd love for him to talk a little bit about kind of the two classes or types of religious duns that we found and really the the differences in mental health between them. Because I think that that was so revealing. Yeah, well, probably a good segue too is to bridge from what you were saying earlier, Daryl, about like the centrality of religion in someone's lives. Because what, yeah, one way to test the difference, like within a group of religious times, is to know why they're no longer religious. Another is to look at the content of their beliefs. Do they believe in God or not anymore? Or how strongly they hold those beliefs, how engaged they are with religious practices, either privately or with like a community. And, you know, how often they're affiliating with religious groups or religious people and their attitudes toward them and toward religion in general. So we took those as indicators for another way in the second study to test for differences within a group of people who said, like, the one thing that they shared was that they were done with religion. And this was a cross-cultural sample. So we have folks from the U.S., from Hong Kong, from the Netherlands responding to that. And like Daryl mentioned, we found two groups of people that deferred on some of those things. So like there was one group that we called the discontinued or discontinuing. And they were the largest group in the sample of people who are done with religion. They largely no longer believed in God. They were no longer really practicing religion much, no longer really affiliating with religious people had more negative attitudes toward religion or religious people. And then the second group, who was a bit smaller, we called them the still practicing duns. So so are these kind of like the quiet quitters of church? Is that what I'm <laughs> well, That's what one of the things we wondered is how do we understand that group, right? Like, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's quiet quitters. And I remember like a conference where we first presented this. There's a whole you know, a host of ideas of like how to describe this group. But we call them the still practicing and they're a little bit more likely to believe in God and a little bit more likely to hold those beliefs strongly or have a little bit more certainty in those, more likely to participate in religious practices still, more likely to affiliate with religious people and even have positive attitudes toward religion. So this group was not as big as the other group. And if you even look across the three cultures, we see like in Hong Kong, people were pretty evenly split between these two groups. But in the U.S. and Netherlands, it was way, way more often that people were part of the discontinued. Like, I'm done and I'm done, done. Mm. Or at least that's what it seems like at that moment in time versus the others. Yeah. And what, what kind of age range of participants were you all looking at specifically within the U.S., kind of generally speaking? I don't have the study right in front of me, but it was an adult sample. And I believe the average age was in the 40s. 
18 to 87. And so you mentioned they're kind of like in the 40s. Do you see that kind of life stage somehow maybe being related to this in any way? Or is that just who was in the sample and how it played out? Any thoughts there? Yeah, we don't have like when they first discontinued. So I don't know if that's related to that stage of life or not. That would be a good follow-up study to this. And I think that's something we mentioned a lot in kind of the discussion of what we were starting to see was, wow, it'd be great to look at this over time. Mm-hmm. Like, what did these trajectories look like across these things? Daryl, it looked like you were about to mention something. Yeah, and Jamie, I mean, I think you're kind of hinting. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm projecting, but maybe you're hinting. You can imagine people, you know, 45, mid-40s, one reason why they might still be going to church, even though they themselves would consider themselves a religious dun, might be because they have kids and they want their kids to be raised in church. And so it could be the fact that they've kind of determined religion's not for them, but despite all the good and the bad, they want their kids to be raised in you know a tradition that has some benefits or gives some structure or maybe has some features that they had growing up as well. But what's so revealing about this is that the still practicing folks had much poorer mental yeah. health than hmm. those that discontinued, yeah. right? And the situation where it's like, this is not my group, this is not my identity, but I'm regularly going. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're looking at the worst positive affect, more negative affect, more anxiety, more depression, more negative emotion toward God, I mean, this is a group that is just kind of emotionally more in tumult than those who are like, yeah, I'm done and I'm done. Like I'm completely Mm -hmm. done. I've discontinued. I've walked away. So there's something kind of unsettling about being a still practicing done. Now, these are correlational data. It could be that these folks kind of were unsettled. And so they are still practicing, right? Or it could be another explanation. But what seems to be fitting the data is the inconsistency between their identity and their actions seems to be pretty strongly linked with with poor mental health. Yeah, so it sounds like that dissonance that you were talking about earlier and kind of that internal conflict just really sounds like it's almost heightened for them. Yeah, you know, kind of at this stage of my career, I'm a very early career. Like, I just walked, so. Congratulations. Well, thank you. So at this point, after doing some research studies, this is one of those studies that stands out to me as the questions I have after this study just linger and linger. And there are so many, I think, questions to explore here about why this group of still practicing duns is experiencing so much more distress. Even like more negative attitudes toward God, which seems interesting given that they had more positive attitudes toward religion and religious individuals. So even that's a question to me. And so, yeah, the cognitive dissonance idea could be one. I imagine also if you're affiliating with folks and you don't identify with them and you don't share certain beliefs and practices, thinking about like my personal background as a Christian, as growing up in religious communities, that's like grounds for some potential deep conflict. Hmm. You know, if you're kind of a threat to the system, a threat to the community in terms of like what you might adhere to or what you don't believe. Yeah, so... It would be interesting to explore a lot of these potential mechanisms for 
what's causing that distress. Yeah, well, it's really fascinating, the findings that you all have found, as well as some of those research questions that I hope that you will pursue, because I think there's so much more that we can learn from you. Now, as we reflect on our conversation then so far today, what are maybe some kind of key takeaways that you would hope that local churches would be able to learn from this specific study? You know, So how might churches be able to actually use what you found to be able to make a difference with this? You know, that's a good question. I'm looking at thinking about the different reasons why people are leaving. You know, one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons is intellectual reasons, right? And so I think when I say that and I share this with other people, the response I get is like, oh, perfect. Then we have to make sure that our theology is buttoned up and on point. And we, you know, we've got to just make sure we are intellectually airtight. I think I would suggest kind of the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think what I would would recommend is a little bit of intellectual humility in saying, you know, we don't have all the answers. And in fact, we welcome questioning and your questioning does not mean you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. In fact, to question, we think means you actually take your faith serious enough that you're thinking about it, that you want to work through it. And it's not just a pro forma, you believe. And then there are probably some things that church leaders can do, like not inflict trauma. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that no. seems like low hanging fruit, but hypocrisy or kind of being unwilling to stand with people who are suffering. I've often joked, one of the things that churches can do that no other organization does as well is organize a potluck. And I know that seems <laughs> absurd, but there's nothing quite like a bunch of people that you're kind of loosely or weakly tied to giving you a series of meals, you know, day after day, week after week, when your life is really hard. Mm. That's actually a tangible, practical presence of sifting through really bad tuna casserole. But what it signals <laughs> is you know, these are people that actually, they care about me. They understand my life is going pretty poorly right now. And I'm not alone. And that not being alone, right? That standing with people during the suffering and adversity, not inflicting trauma, those are tangible things. You can't solve all the theological debates. And I'm sorry if if I'm offending any listeners by, by saying that we're limited humans. But what we can do is treat each other kindly. What we can do is stand with each other when life is really difficult. What we can do is give people space to grieve, to question, and to really experience suffering. So those would be a few takeaways for me, but I'm sure Aaron has some others. Yeah, it's really helpful, Daryl, that focus on our presence over our words, right? That kind of being some of the takeaway there that even that may almost feel initially counterintuitive, especially knowing that for some people it's kind of around some of the intellectual side, but there is something powerful about that, about just coming alongside. I, I know some from some of the studies that we've all collaborated on in the past to be able to find the impact that positive spiritual support can have in instances like this. You know, one of the things as you were talking about potluck, I just have to share my potluck story as well here. So I don't normally have a reason to share it, but I was (laughs) in Mississippi. It was after Katrina. There was a hurricane Gustav was threatening. I get this call over my lunch hour asking, are you the disaster guy? Which I'm not sure that's what you want to be referred to on a random call. But it was this uh, small church and they were fairly new and they were trying to figure out how to get their 
church prepared for this potential hurricane. So I ended up meeting them at this like local sub place to help them plan. And they didn't know where to start. So I was like, well, what is it you guys do well? And they're like, oh, we potluck better than anybody in the deep South. And I was like, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, we sent out a Google doc. We have our, you know, somebody's bringing the sweet tea, of course, we've got the desserts. And then, so what we did was we just on the fly adapted that to disaster preparedness. Like, you know, who has what resources, where will you go? What time does it start? And just use that system. So two potluck stories, that one was free. So that's right. <laughs> in cost of admission here. That's amazing. So taking this back now to a really Really serious place. Where were you when you first heard REM or what stage of life were you in when you first heard losing my religion? Oh man, that had to be, I want to feel like that was middle school. You know, we, we couldn't listen to secular music before church on Sunday, <laughs> but after church on Sunday, we could crank the stereo. And so uh-huh. I think it was on a Sunday. And I remember thinking like, what does this mean? You know, I, I can't. I went to church in the morning. It was singing, losing my religion in the afternoon. That was it for me. Aaron, what about you? I didn't say my music IQ is kind of low, but I will say I probably first heard about it from maybe my sister. Who I mean, she is like incredible, gifted musician, and I remember like when she was little, like. I walked by her bedroom and her door was open and she was asleep, but like she had earphones and she was probably like 12, but it was just like blasting the loudest music I've ever heard. And so she was probably the person that introduced R.E.M. to me, but I can't be certain. That's great. Well, if you all are looking for future study ideas, I do hope that you'll stick with the (laughs) REM theme there and uh, look at end of the world as we know it for your next study. There you go. Yes. Perfect. That's perfect. Hey, Jamie, is it okay if I add one more maybe implication for churches thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Thinking through, you know, what a study like this might mean for them. Because I grew up in a ministry family I've been in ministry myself and I know like, you know, for like Christian ministers, like biblical text is often like the go-to and there's a lot of examples like in New Testament letters that, you know, like Paul wrote to the church, for instance, of kind of this, like when someone created a potential like problem of division, there was a lot of response of guarding against that person, you know, maybe not having to do much with them if they did X, Y, or Z. And lots of Christian denominations kind of took that and for centuries now, right? Like have practices of like disfellowshipping or excommunication. And, you know, that can vary across different cultures, across different denominations, even like within a church. But I do think that's something to think about is we're here saying like, be kind to folks who are questioning, like, especially if they're still practicing or still affiliating with you because they may be experiencing a lot of distress. And there's the kind of this biblical precedent of, well, maybe there's a reason to be guarded or not as pro-social. So I, I do think that's something to think about. I would love to hear what different like religious leaders think about that. But I do think maybe one takeaway is you also have families or friends or coworkers who are probably living that reality like each day in relationship with someone who's still practicing but done or who's, you know, discontinued and done, but they're still, they themselves are still practicing or still part of a religious group. 
And so regardless of whether a church would agree on kind of extending a branch and being very pro-social toward people who might be very different in their theology or beliefs or, you know, just not wanting to identify with them, there's probably mutual appreciation for the idea of caring for families and caring for friends or coworkers and equipping them to be caregivers, to be prosocial, to hold that space well in terms of if someone's losing their religion, to listen through the song, right? Like to send that space with them. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder for us all to, you know, as I kind of reflect on our conversation, for me, kind of the big takeaway was to really humbly love on our neighbors and to be with them in those tough places. So thank you both for the important work that you do and for this fascinating research and for taking time to connect with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jamie, for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. In closing, thank you for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes for helpful links and resources. And as always, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at hdi at wheaton.edu. We look forward to being with you again soon as we continue together on this journey of learning to do good better. Tear, tear, tear